Welcome to the Sword and Trowel podcast. The Sword and Trowel is a podcast of Founders Ministries, and Founders exists for the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of local churches. And I'm Tom Askell. And I'm Graham Gundon. We're glad to have you join us today, and we're looking forward to introducing you to a book that we have coming out and to its author, David Schrock. So we'll get to that in just a moment. But before that, we want to make you aware of some things that are coming up. So Graham, would you go ahead and yeah, let us know? Um, so first, pretty soon here, the rates are going to increase for the Founders National Conference, which is coming up next year, January 19th through the 22nd. So mm-hmm. the conference theme is What is Man? Uh, Pastor Tom will be speaking, Vody Bauckham. Um, who else will be speaking there? Uh, Joel Beakey. Joel Beakey. And Paul Washer. Paul Washer, just you know, a couple of names that most people don't know. They're not familiar with those guys, I don't think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It looks like it's going to be a great conference. The theme of it, What is Man? And goodness, if we're, there were any doubt about the relevancy of this type of theological investigation, uh, the recent Supreme Court appointee has put all of those questions to bed, I trust. Also, the Institute of Public Theology will have a couple of courses coming up in the summer. Tom Nettles will be teaching the first part of church history up to the Reformation. And then we've got Travis Allen coming in to do an introduction to the New Testament. So he'll give an overview of the New Testament writings. And you can audit those courses. You can also become a student of the Institute of Public Theology. We would love to have you do that. And right now, the application fee is being waived. Application fee, that's correct. <laughs> There's a difference between the application fee and the registration fee, I've been told, <laughs> and I try to keep those straight. I don't don't always do it, but go to the Institute of Public, or Institute of Public Theology.org. Mm-hmm. You can read more about that. We've got some other exciting things uh, coming up in the fall related to that, and then Vody Balkan will be teaching a course on worldview, God willing, next January. Be so, fun. yeah, I just it, it, check it out. It's a wonderful opportunity to uh, engage in theological instruction from a vantage point that recognizes Jesus Christ as Lord over all, and that all of our thinking, all of our learning, all of our ministry needs to be done with that conviction. All right, anything else going on that we need to mention before we introduce David? I don't think so. Um, Just remind people to Get ready to come out to the Southern Baptist Convention if you are a member of a Southern Baptist church. Now, why should uh, why should people go to the Southern Baptist Convention? Well, it's going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> it one. will be a lot of fun. Unprecedented fun. <laughs> yeah. Unprecedented fun. Uh, Tom is uh, be- being nominated for the president of the SBC, and so it'll be fun. Even if you can't go as a messenger to vote, <laughs> it'll still be fun just to watch the happen. That's right. It'll be worth the price of a ticket just to... Uh, Which is <laughs> incidentally free, right? That's right. It is free. I think you can at least show up for free. Well, David, welcome uh, all the way from... Northern Virginia to be a part of the podcast today. Uh, Dr. David Schrock has been the pastor of Alca Alcohoon, did I say it right? Alcohuan. Alcohuan. Bible Church. Alcohuan. <laughs> Sorry about that. Alcohuan Bible Church uh, and has been there for seven years. Uh, when you went to the church, it was not a Southern Baptist church. Is that right? That's right. And you led it into the Southern Baptist Convention. Yeah, actually, uh, our other elders uh, took the lead on that. I would have been happy to do that, but I didn't have to because I saw good things with uh, missions, the uh, Southern Baptist Convention, and they took the lead on that. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, it's, that's a, a wonderful testimony about that. You yourself actually did your uh, Ph.D. studies at Southern Seminary. Is that correct? Yeah, I did both my MDiv and uh, Ph.D. at Southern. What was your Ph.D. in? Uh, it was in systematic theology. And can and what uh, what did you focus on? Yeah, so uh, I did a biblical theology of the priesthood, mm-hmm. and you've just written a book about that as well. That cross uh, so that was 
Uh, yeah. So uh, Crossway just published a book on uh, biblical theology of the priesthood. That's right. Wonderful. Yeah. So that's a, that looks like a wonderful book too. I've gotten a copy of that. Thank you for that. And look Absolutely. forward to uh, working my way through that. And you've also written a book that we are about to publish through Founders Press. And uh, tell us about that book. Tell us the title and then what uh, spurred you to write it. Yeah, uh, the title is Brothers, We Are Not Plagiarists, a uh, pastoral plea to forsake the peddling of God's word. Um, and really what led me to, to write that was a few blog posts that I wrote last summer uh, in response to some of the things that were going on in the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, and just uh, the kind of the indifference to some of the claims of plagiarism that came out with some of our leaders in the SBC mm-hmm. um, and just the need to say the, the pulpit matters, the word of God matters. And we as pastors need to be honest and full of integrity as we preach the word of God. Uh, so that's where it kind of came from. Yeah. And second Corinthians uh, chapter two, verses 15 through 17 says this, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to the one a fragrance from death to death to the other a fragrance from life to life who is sufficient for these things, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. And uh, that's kind of the uh, a theme of what you're arguing for here. And I think this is something, David, that's been lost in a lot of the debate about, well, hey, is it okay to borrow other people's sermons? Is it okay if uh, you use other people's illustrations? And one of the things I appreciate about your book is that you acknowledge we all, we all are influenced by and we all look to certain instructors and examples to help us become better preachers. So uh, elaborate on that a little bit. I mean, what? T- tell us what you're not arguing against in this book. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's, there's the irony you know, that uh, already uh, when founders put up on Facebook, this book was coming, brothers, we are not plagiarists. It's like, oh, he's plagiarizing John Piper. Uh, in the <laughs> it's like, no, there's a way that we use, we creatively borrow. We, there are good and right ways to do that. There's so many books. I've got a book across the shelf here, you know, Christianity and Wokeness by our friend Owen Strayan, mm-hmm. right? And he is playing on Christianity and liberalism right. that, uh, you know, Jay Gresham Machen wrote 100 years ago. Uh, and so we do that all the time. And there's there's good, healthy ways to do that. And then there are unhealthy and unbiblical and unhelpful ways to do that. And in the book, I'm trying to make the distinction between the two, to be able to say that just using someone else's sermon with or without giving credit certainly falls into the category of plagiarism. I explained why that is. Uh, and yet there are good, healthy practices of learning from others and being shaped by others. Uh, and we see that in the scriptures as well, uh, where certainly in the New Testament, we have authors of apostles who are writing, who are constantly quoting and alluding to things from the Old Testament and from one another. Yeah. It's been fascinating to me to see the response of uh, different evangelicals to the scandals that kind of erupted on the large screen over the last eight or nine months. Uh, Some of them just kind of wrote it off. You know, it's no big deal. Uh, One even went so far as to say, you know, well, the the, uh, gospel of Mark plagiarized uh, from Matthew, you know, <laughs> so how do you, uh, how do you respond to those kinds of just dismissive attitudes about this? Yeah. Uh, again, I, I didn't see that, you know, remark until after I'd written all of that. <laughs> I'm glad that, that was the case. Um, but certainly it's one of those things, there's a misunderstanding of, of how scripture is being used, of what scripture is doing. Uh, and how we are have rights or not to have rights to, to use the work of others. And so what I mean by that 
is that certainly in the New Testament, when you're making those cases for Mark, he is certainly appealing to the Old Testament. He's certainly inspired by the Holy Spirit. Uh, he is not trying to pull one over and just to say he is copying something else. The synoptics are not an example of plagiarism, uh, but rather it is, you know, each of those gospels is making its own argument uh, that is there. And I think that's the healthy way that we should borrow from others as well, uh, in a sense that we are not just taking the words of others and making them our own, uh, but rather that we are, you know, when we're quoting, we can make a quotation, make note of that. Uh, and that what we're doing is certainly standing on the shoulders of those who've gone before us. Uh, certainly any faithful preaching, preaching from the word of God, these ideas shouldn't be our own. If we're coming up with something novel, uh, that's not good. Um, but then again, there's a way that there seems to be a willingness to say it doesn't matter uh, what is being done, because even the office of a pastor uh, comes into question something where a pastor needs to do his own work, studying the scriptures to show himself to be approved, or can he, with the charisma that God has given to him, just stand and speak uh, with or without actually doing the work in the text? Uh, and that seems to be inviting all kinds of trouble for just the, the character of that man, the, the validity of the gospel, the reputation of the church. Uh, all those things are, are in play. You know, it's, it really does go to the heart of what does it mean to be called of God? to take the word of God and preach it. And uh, I, I can't help but believe that a lot of what we're seeing today um, is just fruit of a lack of sobriety about that sense of calling and what is involved in that. Uh, you know, we've, we've seen it with uh, church planting instruction. I've talked to church planters who said, man, we've been told just get sermons from anywhere. You know, the real work you've got to do is gathering up a core group and getting out in the community, and that's going to take all your time and energy. So if you can just grab a sermon somewhere, that's, that's not that important. And I don't, that, that's kind of a recent development, I would think, in church history. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of the things that David Wells uh, put out in the books that he wrote in the 90s and following, mm -hmm. where the ministry of the pastor has been changed from something theological to something sociological, right? It is the professionalization uh, that is there, which is even, again, you know, Piper, who I mentioned the very first chapter of the book and the influence that he has had on me, wrote in his book, Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. Uh, the nature of the, the pastoral office does not come from Paul writing to Timothy and Titus, but it comes from, you know, marketing schemes and church planting needs and, you know, the, the needs of the day, instead of just trusting in the sufficiency of God's word and say, no, God actually had a good plan uh, when he called pastors to be men who study the word to then teach the word. Yeah, I think it's a lack of confidence in preaching, maybe a lack of understanding of what preaching entails. Uh, we get it from different angles. I've had conversations with guys who've been disgruntled um, about the church and their own involvement in not just the church I serve right now, but other churches as well. So, you know, why do you get to be the one who talks? You know, uh, <laughs> what makes you so special? Then why do we, why are we expected to come and sit and listen to you and? Uh, where do you find that? And it's, it's just a misunderstanding that God chooses the foolishness of preaching to save those who will believe. And the glory goes to God because, yeah, we wouldn't, we wouldn't do it this way if we were trying to figure out how best to market the church. But we are men under authority. Yeah, when you think about uh, men in, in history who have had effective ministries, um, they, they didn't spend their time in church administrative needs. They didn't 
they didn't spend their times in those with those church growth strategies that we see so much today. You think of the Charles Spurgeon, Martin Lloyd Jones. They had a ministry of the word, and there was a powerful ministry of the word, mm-hmm. and they were able to minister to so many people that were coming flocking to their churches to hear mm-hmm. the word of God preached. Um, now, not not everybody's a Martin Lloyd Jones, and not everyone's <laughs> a Charles Spurgeon, obviously. Um, but it wasn't the men themselves that that um, the Spirit went forth in power because of the men, but rather because they proclaimed the gospel, they proclaimed the word of God powerfully. Um, and you know, one thing that's that's struck me in all of this, you know, I'm in seminary. I remember being warned about uh, kind of the overuse of commentaries, the overuse of Bible software in order to pre- prepare a sermon. Those things are wonderful tools, and, and pastors should take advantage of those. But if you rely totally on those tools, then you haven't yourself struggled or wrestled through the text. And mm-hmm. professor at, at Southern, Dr. Brian Vickers, was really helpful for, to me in this and talking about and properly interpreting a text. One has to struggle through the text, and I think he's following Luther in this. You have to struggle through the text. You have to let the text speak to your own conscience, your own heart, uh, allow it to overcome your own sinful inclinations, your own sinful thoughts. Um, and in that way, then, you can take the scriptures and the way that you've struggled through them and the ways that the scriptures have even overcome yourself and then proclaim that to your people. Uh, mm-hmm. When you're plagiarizing somebody else's stuff or when you're having somebody do all the work of building your sermon out for you, you don't have that opportunity mm-hmm. to allow the spirit to speak to you through the word and then therefore for you to speak the word to your people. Yeah. yeah. Graham, I think that's an excellent point because it really shows, you know, I mean, this is the burden of the book that I'm concerned for the souls of the pastors. Right, because if they're not feeding on the word of God themselves, if they're not being changed by the word of God themselves in the study of that word, then the longevity of their ministry really begins to be a question. Um, and Tom, to your point earlier, where it seems as though we've gotten things backwards that, you know, with our, our YouTube age and everything else online and just the, the, the screen that just seems to be putting forward these pastors, it seems though young men could be tempted to think, I want to have that platform. Mm-hmm. I want to have that position. When really the creation of a pastor should be someone who in their younger years or older years has studied the word of God in such a way that as they hold fast to the word of God, they can proclaim it rightly and defend the truth as they're called to shepherd God's flock. Yeah, amen. I I remember the most radical thing that happened to me as a young pastor, um, and I was struggling, you know, to try to figure out what to preach week by week, and uh, and it was it was desperate. (laughs) I was a student (laughs) at Texas A and M my senior year, and uh, I'm called to pastor these people and uh something god you're gonna have to help me you're gonna have to help me and and i I was desperate to try to understand the text and the best thing that ever happened to me was not a preaching course so praise god for preaching courses and the men that tried to help me uh through that but it was coming to understand the word of god better and man when i began to get uh some theological foundations under me it revolutionized my preaching because things began to make sense and there's no doubt uh you know, elocution and rhetoric and uh, gestures, all those things are important. We ought to not neglect them. But if that becomes the focal point to the neglect of what does the text actually say, what is God saying, then we're basically just training performers, actors. Yeah, mm-hmm. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul abominates and says, you know, yeah. we will not do this. Uh, has this happened to you, David? I, I've talked to multiple pastors who have the same testimony I'm about to give for myself. I know of at least probably very conservatively, I could say half a dozen situations since last summer when this plagiarism scandal broke out publicly in the SBC of churches 
who have discovered that their pastors were just either downloading other sermons or using sermons from other sources and had been doing it for years. I mean, I, I, there, there's one in Georgia. There's one right here across the state from us in Florida uh, where these guys were doing this. This was their bread and butter of their public ministry. But because the scandal broke out, some thoughtful uh, church members began to do a little investigation and discovered mm-hmm. and, and they've all lost their jobs, rightly so. I think they should be removed. But have you heard of uh, stories like that as well? Yeah, I wish I could say I hadn't, but I have. Um, you know, I was on a phone call just last week, um, not because of this book, but because of the blog post that I wrote last year. Uh, a deacon, you know, called me to ask about the situation that he was in. We're in a revival at his church a number of weeks ago. The pastor basically came out and confessed uh, that he'd been plagiarizing. And this is something that the deacons have been working with him, you know, for, for multiple years on this. Um, and he could even see that maybe there was a change that he had moved away from that, but he confessed this to the congregation. And basically, uh, a good number of the congregation condoned it and, you know, didn't have any problem with that at all and even making matters worse, the revivalist who is there on top of that also said that he had done that and had also, you know, kind of condoned that. Uh, so I think this is a systemic problem uh, that runs deep in and through our convention. Well, having said that, then uh, what do you think is at the root of it? Um, you know, I think fear of man mm. always seems to play a part of that seeking to please others, trying to, to be something greater than we are and taking a shortcut to that. Like it's hard work to preach good sermons week in and week out. Uh, and if there's a, a shortcut to do that where you can retain that position, it's a little bit easier. And you're told that you have to do all these other pastoral responsibilities. Um, and the, the nature of the pastor, uh, the office of the pastor is lost on both the pastor and on the congregation. I think all of those are inviting this kind of, of activity. Yeah, I think that's a good point. It goes to the heart of, of a lot of what I see, too, is I've been thinking about the uh, not just the SBC, but especially the SBC. And people are asking me, you know, what do you think the main problem is in the SBC? And I, I've reduced it down to a few things. But at the, the head of all those things is we don't fear God anymore. Yeah. We just really don't have much regard for God. He doesn't weigh on us heavily anymore and then that from that extends all these other things we think we can do church according to marketing techniques or the latest sociological theories and ministry of course just fits into that and then the whole idea of evangelism discipleship gets watered down from that and uh, no wonder we've been so susceptible to having these uh, ideologies from secularism and the world come in because we just we've lost the very basics that extend from coming back to a right regard of God being created in his image, being redeemed by his son and having had him speak to us authoritatively in his word. And uh, we just kind of been making it up as we go. It seems like, and throwing a little Bible in to, you know, sound Christian. I mean, I, I know that's harsh and maybe an overgeneralization, but I don't think it's too far from the truth. Yeah. I think we have it. I think we have a shockingly weak ecclesiology and this uh, pulpit plagiarism is just one symptom of that. I mean, you can see it in so many different ways uh, in modern evangelicalism. Um, And I think another problem uh, when it comes to this particular issue, uh, and this isn't going to be the case for everyone and it's hard to judge people's hearts, uh, but just sloth, 
you know, mm-hmm. just sloth. Just thinking of it in a professional way. I mean, an organization has paid you to do X, Y, and Z. Has paid you to do a job. You don't go and do that job. Rather, you take you find somebody else who has done the job, and you take their work and present it to the to, to your employers. That's that's basically in principle. That's what we have going on here. As people who are some of them who are don't want to do the work, but want to get the paycheck. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think along with that, it's just there's just the spirit of pragmatism that runs through all of it, right? And again, I think there are numbers. Some of the when I wrote some of these blog posts last year, had some comments on there making defense for pastors and what they're doing there, and it is a misunderstanding of what it is that they're called to do. So as long as the results happen, as long as the church grows, as long as the budget is satisfactory, as long as this out of the other thing. the outward appearance looks good, well, then it doesn't matter what's taking place. Uh, but again, God's word gives us not only the results, but it gives us the means to which that is to be accomplished. Because at the end of the day, the foolishness of preaching gives all the glory to God. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if we do anything besides that, well, then we can, you know, take credit for that in the slick ways that we do that and reproducing even these things that may or not be pleasing to God, but seem to have growth uh, taking place in our pragmatic age. Yeah, that that's a a good insight as well because I I, you know, I grew up uh, with a lot of the uh, kind of church growth pragmatism on steroids. I mean, in the seventies and eighties, uh, man, we were getting. I remember one church I went to, the second church I ever served. They had just bought into this uh, a growth spiral, church growth spiral, and it was like here's four factors we control, three of them we do, three you plug and play on this deal. Number four always follows, which is baptisms and budget goes up and you know growth, and so you just have to do these things. You do these things, and and one of the one of the key components of that is we you know we've got to get people in we got to get people in the doors we sign people up so you were going around signing people up to be members of your Sunday school before they even knew where the church met you know or or what a bible was it didn't matter just if you got a hundred of them you know that seven are going to come and of those seven you know one will make a decision or something I forget the formula but it was all very formulaic and um in one staff meeting the there was a, I hope I'm getting on thin ice here, but I'm going to go ahead and tell the story. I'm old enough. I don't care. So, uh, but we were one staff and I'm a young guy, I'm impetuous and, you know, I wasn't, wasn't as wise as I could have wished I was then and uh, hope to be one day. But uh, the, the comment was made in this staff, large staff, you know, man, look at the church down the road. I mean, they got people walking the aisle every week, every week, somebody's walking the aisle. And so everybody thinks that the spirit of God's moving because their folks are walking the aisle. We got to do something to get people to walk the aisle. So, I mean, whether or not God's moving, we need to get the impression that God's moving. Oh my goodness. So, you know, forgive me, but I was like 23 and, uh, I said, well, I've got it. I said, Here's, this is easy. Let's give color TVs to everybody who makes it down the aisle. I said, let's just have a good, good one color TVs. And of course, it didn't go over well. I didn't get fired, but I did get reprimanded pretty severely. But I, I think it's, it is that, you know, whatever works. And we define what works by the outcomes that are more sociological than theological, biblical, spiritual. And then the people who do what works, they become the gurus, and they tell us how to do what works. And in and through this, it's the, the word of God just kind of gets assumed, if, if that, if that much. And it's deadly. It's deadly. So, I, yeah, I, I think this is symptomatic of a much wider 
much deeper problem that's not going to be solved uh, simply by mechanics. And I mean, you, you address this in your book. You talk about, man, we got we to gotta back up and ask what it is we're doing uh, when we stand to preach. Um, so just a question uh, briefly. What are the major ethical problems with plagiarizing in the pulpit? Yeah, I mean, you have um, bearing false witness, you have stealing, you have coveting, right? I mean, so the 8th, ninth, and 10th commandments uh, are the problems there. I mean, so the work of other own, you know, some will say, well, there's no material property that is lost, um, right? So, I mean, I, in the book, I'll even cite um, Malcolm Gladwell, who has a very fascinating article about this, who actually may make the best defense for uh, plagiarism that isn't plagiarism. It makes the point, if you have taken somebody's uh, picnic table, uh, that you, you know, you can tell that it's gone. Um, but in this case, it seems to just be spreading the wealth around. I'll put, you know, the bullets of someone else's gun in my gun, and it'll work just the same. Um, but no, actually, there is intellectual property that is there. There is something that is created by someone else. That's a good work that someone else has done by the spirit. And it's taking that and claiming it as your own. It's only slightly better if you say, well, I got this from someone else. But at that point, it just raises all the questions that are there about, is this person capable or qualified to, to be preaching? So that's one thing. I mean, then you have bearing false witness where there seems to be, you know, when um, hundreds of sermons are having to be taken down because they were dependent upon someone else, there's something of just bearing false witness uh, that is there. Uh, and again, I mean, in the book, I'll mention, you know, there was a pastor, the church um, or in the town that I was in before who put at the bottom, you know, a little footnote saying, you know, some of these sermons may not be my own. Uh, but again, you know, that, that's maybe more honest. Uh, but again, it just raises all kinds of questions. And then at the heart of it is just the aspect of coveting, I think, mm. right? When we see a, a lack of confidence in the word of God, and so the confidence has to be in ourselves preaching. Uh, and therefore, I'm not sure I can do it this week and that week and do it as well as I can. So this guy does it really well. Uh, so I'm going to use their resources because I want to have their type of ministry. And again, every person's going to be different. But there is a heart issue that is here. And I think a lot of it has to do with coveting. And of course, Paul says that, you know, coveting is idolatry. Uh, so we're making an idol of the preacher instead of, you know, continuing to find our, our hope and our confidence in the word of God that never returns void. Mm. So then uh, a follow-up question then, is yeah. not quoting people in your sermon kind of that same issue in miniature? So you have maybe an, an extended quote from John Owen in your sermon. Yeah. Um, you're giving John Owen credit. Uh, but you're using work that he's done. Yeah, I mean, so certainly, I think, you know, without putting a quantity on it and making a percentage, uh, I think you're doing a few things when you quote someone else. Um, and I'll make this distinction in the book that when you're quoting someone, you may want to encourage people to read John Owen. Uh, you may also want to warn them that John Owen is difficult to read. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, he's, he's great to read. And so I'd be happy to, to name drop him in the sermon and encourage people to go and do that. Uh, I mentioned in the book, John Walton's name, uh, as someone who I might quote and just say an Old Testament scholar, because I don't necessarily want to endorse everything that he has written. Uh, there's some things I say, yeah, this is great. On other aspects, I would not. And so I just kind of make that a little bit more general. Um, and then even in a recent sermon, you know, there were two lines in that sermon that I didn't cite at all, but I footnoted because the nature of preaching something and the nature of writing something, I think there is a distinction. And I try to draw out that distinction in the book to help pastors to realize that one of the ways that some have gotten into trouble with plagiarism is that they have put into print things that they had forgotten. It was actually quotes from earlier. So 
establishing a pattern of footnoting, I think is really important in that process. But to answer your question, Graham, I think there is a distinction there because you're not building the entire sermon off of that, but recognizing we all stand on the shoulders of those who've gone before us. And we learn from, you know, the church universal to help us to understand these things. And it's appropriate to make that kind of quotation. Yeah. And that distinction is important too, David. You, and you do make it in the, the book. I mean, I, I do that all the time. I'll, I'll put footnotes or at least a parenthetical note where the page is that I got the quote from, or even the idea, if it's a substantive idea in there. And that just helps me if I ever go back through this material to uh, remember what I knew at the time I was putting it together, I got this from somewhere else. But man, how tedious would it be if you, if you spoke the way you wrote an academic paper? I mean, yeah. that's not preaching. And so we don't want anybody to think, oh, you know, if you ever say a phrase or a word or an idea that you got from somebody else and you don't give full bibliographic reference to it, then, then you're uh, dishonoring the preaching of God's word. It's not that at all. It, it is what you said at the very beginning, recognizing, okay, we have a stewardship here and God has given us his word. We want to understand it. Praise God for teachers he's given to the church throughout history that help us understand that word. And as they benefit us to that end, what we're wanting to do is preach the word. And yes, we will never deny that we're doing this with help from others, but um, that's different than just taking what others have done and pretending like it is our own. I mean, down to the illustrations and in some cases, as we've seen, where you're talking about what you did that you didn't do, the other guy did. Well, let me ask you a couple of questions before we wrap up here. Um, so what would you say to a pastor who has been doing this, and this has been kind of standard practice for him, and God's convicted him of it, and he's realizing, okay, this is wrong. I can't continue uh, on this pathway. What kind of counsel would you have to such a man? Yeah, again, if there has been an aspect that he has built his ministry by bearing false witness, and again, that false witness may not even be verbally speaking, you know, lying about it, um, but just has been living um, a pastoral life without doing the pastoral work, I would say repent. Uh, and I'd say that as gently as I possibly could to bring these things into the light. Um, and, you know, that doesn't mean necessarily that their future ministry, like, I don't know what that means, mm-hmm. right? I think this is where I try to encourage the book that every pastor, every situation is going to look different because the, the severity to which they are doing this is going to be different. Um, it's different on the number of times they're doing this, the different ways that they're doing that. But I'd say bring this into the light. Uh, and trust the counsel of godly counselors, whether it be other pastors who are who would be opposed to these things, and not just those who would give, you know, uh, would be condoning this, but bring it to the light of the other elders in the church or to whatever the structure of the church is. It needs to be brought into the light of that church, uh, and then you know, trusting God in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, that ultimately, if the Lord is the one who's called them to ministry, that he is the one who's going to equip them for ministry. And if they've been making bad habits to do that, then they need to, to change that. Uh, and, and to seek to do so humbly uh, and to allow not their own hearts to make those decisions, but the counsel of other godly brothers around them to help them to do that. Amen. Let me ask you a follow-up question. Would, would you say something similarly to a congregation? So say a, a person in the congregation begins to suspect this and does a little research and discovers, man, this is standard fare. Our pastor is preaching other people's sermons. What would you say to that man? 
Yeah. Again, you know, the counsel that I gave just last week is it would be appropriate if the brother was humble enough to receive the correction, I think, you know, to do one of two things, you know, there could be a sabbatical uh, where this man goes back to ground one, ground zero to, to figure out how to do this, if the church continues to trust him in that, or in the case of this church, it seems as though there was such a lack of trust. Maybe there's a place of just making a severance package to care for his church, or excuse me, to care for his family as he makes a transition. Uh, and again, this is where um, we can't just continue to uh, to protect those who are doing this or to condone that or to provide for them in doing that because uh, the reputation of the gospel, the reputation of the church is at stake in these things. Amen. Well said. Well, we are looking forward to getting this book off the press, and uh, we've actually put it on a fast track to try to make it available before the Southern Baptist Convention that meets in Anaheim coming up in June. And uh, we don't even have all of the details yet, so we we usually do a pre-publication sale after we have everything wrapped up and we make sure that we know what the exact costs are going to be. But uh, we've been hit by the supply chain disruption as well as everybody else, and so it's been hard to get everything lined up uh, just yet. But we're going to go out on a limb a little bit and make – your book available for a pre-publication price of $7. So if you would like to order this, there's going to be a link at the bottom of this podcast, and we'll start putting it out on social media where you can order. Uh, Brothers, we're not plagiarists. A pastoral plea to forsake the peddling of God's word for $7. And here's another idea that we've just come up with before we start talking to you, David. Um, We want to give this book away as well. We'd like to give it away to pastors, uh, to church leaders, to seminary students as widely as we can. So if you'd like to help us give this book away, uh, we can give it away for $5. If you, if you would like to give a donation of $5, that will enable us to take it. There won't be any postage involved and to put it in the hands of uh, Southern Baptists at the Southern Baptist Convention in Anaheim. So if we are able to, to generate enough support for this, then we will purchase an extra quantity off the press to have drop shipped into Anaheim waiting for us when we get there and we'll give them away. So you'll, you can go to the website, founders.org, and look in the bookstore and look for the banner that uh, is promoting this book, Brother, We're Not Plagiarists. And if you'd like to contribute to help us give the book away, uh, we'll give away as many as we possibly can. If you'd like to order a copy for yourself, you can do it at a deep discount on the prepub price of $7. Well, David, man, thank you so much for writing the book. Thank you for thinking about these issues and um, for your uh, integrity and wanting other pastors to, uh, to take these things seriously. It's important. Grateful for you and uh, your fellow elders in that church. Look forward to seeing you, God willing, in Anaheim. Amen, brother. Thank you guys for having me on. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks Thank for listening today, and we look forward to having you with us again next week on The Sword and Trial.